0: Section 19. Ingersoll's Lecture on Heretics and Heresies. Part 2 of 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ingersoll's Lecture on Heretics and Heresies. From the book, Lectures of Colonel Robert Greene Ingersoll, Volume 2. The doctrines of Calvin spread rapidly, and were eagerly accepted by multitudes on the continent. But Scotland in a few years became the real fortress of Presbyterianism. The Scotch rivaled the adherents of Calvin, and succeeded in establishing the same kind of theocracy that flourished in Geneva. The clergy took possession and control of everybody and everything it is impossible to exaggerate the slavery, the mental degradation, the abject superstition of the people of Scotland during the reign of Presbyterianism. Heretics were hunted and devoured as though they had been wild beasts. The gloomy insanity of Presbyterianism took possession of a great majority of the people. They regarded their ministers as the Jews did Moses and Aaron. They believed that they were the especial agents of God, and that whatsoever they bound in Scotland would be bound in heaven. There was not one particle of intellectual freedom. No one was allowed to differ from the church, or to even contradict a priest. Had Presbyterianism maintained its ascendancy, Scotland would have been peopled by savages to-day. THE REVENGEFUL SPIRIT OF CALVIN TOOK POSSESSION OF THE PURITANS AND CAUSED THEM TO REDDEN THE SOIL OF THE NEW WORLD WITH THE BRAVE BLOOD OF HONEST MEN. CLINGING TO THE FIVE POINTS OF CALVIN, THEY TOO ESTABLISHED GOVERNMENTS IN ACCORDANCE WITH THE TEACHINGS OF THE OLD TESTAMENT. THEY TOO ATTACHED THE PENALTY OF DEATH TO THE EXPRESSION OF HONEST THOUGHT. They, too, believed their church supreme, and exerted all their power to curse this continent with a spiritual despotism as infamous as it was absurd. They believed with Luther that universal toleration is universal error, and universal error is universal hell. Toleration was denounced as a crime." Fortunately for us, civilization has had a softening effect upon the Presbyterian Church. To the ennobling influence of the arts and science, the savage spirit of Calvinism has in some slight degree succumbed. True, the old creed remains substantially as it was written, but by a kind of tacit understanding it has come to be regarded as a relic of the past." the cry of heresy, has been growing fainter and fainter, and as a consequence the ministers of that denomination have ventured now and then to express doubts as to the damnation of infants and the doctrine of total depravity. The fact is, the old ideas became a little monotonous to the people. The fall of man, the scheme of redemption and irresistible grace, began to have a familiar sound the preachers told the old stories while the congregation slept some of the ministers became tired of these stories themselves the five points grew dull and they felt that nothing short of irresistible grace could bear this endless repetition the outside world was full of progress and in every direction men advanced while the church anchored to a creed idly rotted at the shore other denominations imbued some little with the spirit of investigation were springing up on every side while the old presbyterian ark rested on the ararat of the past filled with the theological monsters of another age lured by the splendors of the outer world tempted by the achievements of science, longing to feel the throw and beat of the mighty march of the human race, a few of the ministers of this conservative denomination were compelled by irresistible sense to say a few words in harmony with the splendid ideas of today these utterances have upon several occasions so nearly awakened some of the members that rubbing their eyes they have feebly inquired whether these grand ideas were not somewhat heretical these ministers found that just in proportion as their orthodoxy decreased their congregations increased those who dealt in the pure unadulterated article found themselves demonstrating the five points to a less number of hearers than they had points. Stung to madness by this bitter truth, this galling contrast, this harassing fact, the really orthodox have raised the cry of heresy, and expect with this cry to seal the lips of honest men. One of these ministers, and one who has been enjoying the luxury of a little honest thought, and the real rapture of expressing it has already been indicted and is about to be tried by the presbytery of illinois he has been charged first with speaking in an ambiguous language in relation to that dear old doctrine of the fall of man with having neglected to preach that most comforting and consoling truth the eternal damnation of the soul Surely that man must be a monster who could wish to blot this blessed doctrine out, and rob earth's wretched children of this blissful hope. Who can estimate the misery that has been caused by this most infamous doctrine of eternal punishment? Think of the lives it has blighted, of the tears it has caused, of the agony it has produced. Think of the millions who have been driven to insanity by this most terrible of dogmas. This doctrine renders God the basest and most cruel being in the universe. Compared with Him, the most frightful deities of the most barbarous and degraded tribes are miracles of goodness and mercy. There is nothing more degrading than to worship such a God. Lower than this the soul can never sink. If the doctrine of eternal damnation is true, let me have my portion in hell, rather than in heaven with a God infamous enough to inflict eternal misery upon any of the sons of men. Second, with having spoken a few kind words of Robert Collier and John Stuart Mill, I have the honor of a slight acquaintance with Robert Collier. I have read with pleasure some of his exquisite productions. He has a brain full of the dawn, the head of a philosopher, the imagination of a poet, and the sincere heart of a child. Is a minister to be silenced because he speaks fairly of a noble and candid adversary? Is it a crime to compliment a lover of justice, an advocate of liberty, one who has devoted his life to the elevation of man, the discovery of truth, and the promulgation of what he believed to be right? Can that tongue be palsied by a presbytery that praises a self-denying and heroic life? Is it a sin to speak a charitable word over the grave of John Stuart Mill? Is it heretical to pay a just and graceful tribute to departed worth? Must the true Presbyterian violate the sanctity of the tomb, dig open the grave, and ask his God to curse the silent dust? Is Presbyterianism so narrow that it conceives of no excellence, of no purity of intention, of no spiritual and moral grandeur outside of its barbaric creed? Does it still retain within its stony heart all the malice of its founder? Is it still warming its fleshless hands at the flames that consumed Servetus? Does it still glory in the damnation of infants, and does it still persist in emptying the cradle in order that perdition may be filled? Is it still starving the soul and famishing the heart? Is it still trembling and shivering, crouching and crawling before its ignorant confession of faith? Had such men as Robert Collier and John Stuart Mill been present at the burning of Servetus, they would have extinguished the flames with their tears. Had the Presbytery of Chicago been there, they would have quietly turned their backs, solemnly divided their coattails, and warmed themselves. Third, with having spoken disparagingly of the doctrine of predestination, if there is any dogma that ought to be protected by law predestination is that doctrine surely it is a cheerful joyous thing to one who is laboring struggling and suffering in this weary world to think that before he existed before the earth was before a star had glittered in the heavens before a ray of light had left the quiver of the sun his destiny had been irrevocably fixed, and that for an eternity before his birth he had been doomed to bear eternal pain. Fourth, with having failed to preach the efficacy of vicarious sacrifice. Suppose a man had been convicted of murder, and was about to be hanged, the governor acting as the executioner and suppose just as the doomed man was to suffer death someone in the crowd should step forward and say i am willing to die in the place of that murderer he has a family and i have none and suppose further that the governor should reply come forward young man your offer is accepted a murder has been committed and somebody must be hung and your death will satisfy the law just as well as the death of the murderer What would you then think of the doctrine of vicarious sacrifice? This doctrine is the consummation of two outrages, forgiving one crime and committing another. Fifth, with having inculcated a phase of the doctrine commonly known as evolution or development, the Church believes and teaches the exact opposite of this doctrine according to the philosophy of theology man has continued to degenerate for six thousand years to teach that there is that in nature which impels to higher forms and grander ends is heresy of course the deity will damn spencer and his evolution darwin and his origin of species Bastin and his spontaneous generation, Huxley and his protoplasm, Tyndall and his prayer-gauge, and will save those and those only who declare that the universe has been cursed from the smallest atom to the grandest star, that everything tends to evil and to that only, and that the only perfect thing in nature is the Presbyterian confession of faith. Sixth, with having intimated that the reception of Socrates and Penelope at Heaven's Gate was, to say the least, a trifle more cordial than that of Catherine Second. Penelope, waiting patiently and trustfully for her lord's return, delaying her suitors while sadly weaving and unweaving the shroud of Laertes, is the most perfect type of wife and woman produced by the civilization of Greece. Socrates, whose life was above reproach, and whose death was beyond all praise, stands to-day, in the estimation of every thoughtful man, at least the peer of Christ. Catherine II assassinated her husband. Stepping upon his corpse, she mounted the throne— She was the murderess of Prince Ivan, the grand-nephew of Peter the Great, who was imprisoned for eighteen years, and who, during all that time, saw the sky but once. Taken all in all, Catherine was probably one of the most intellectual beasts that ever wore a crown. Catherine, however, was the head of the Greek church. Socrates was a heretic, and Penelope lived and died without having once heard of particular redemption or irresistible grace. Seventh, with repudiating the idea of a call to ministry, and pretending that men were called, to preach as they were to the other avocations of life. If this doctrine is true, God, to say the least of it, is an exceedingly poor judge of human nature. It is more than a century since a man of true genius has been found in an orthodox pulpit. Every minister is heretical just to the extent that his intellect is above the average. The Lord seems to be satisfied with mediocrity, but the people are not." An old deacon, wishing to get rid of an unpopular preacher, advised him to give up the ministry, and turn his attention to something else. The preacher replied that he could not conscientiously desert the pulpit, as he had a call to the ministry. To which the deacon replied, "'That may be so, but it's mighty unfortunate for you, that when God called you to preach, he forgot to call anybody to hear you.' There is nothing more stupidly egotistic than the claim of the clergy that they are in some divine sense set apart to the service of the Lord, that they have been chosen and sanctified, that there is an infinite difference between them and persons employed in secular affairs. They teach us that all other professions must take care of themselves, that god allows anybody to be a doctor a lawyer a statesman soldier or artist that the motts and coopers the mansfields and marshals the wilberforces and sumners the angelos and raphaels were never honored by a call these chose their professions and won their laurels without the assistance of the lord all these men were left free to follow their own inclinations while God was busily engaged selecting and calling priests, rectors, elders, ministers, and exhorters. Eighth, with having doubted that God was the author of the hundred and ninth psalm. The portion of that psalm which carries with it the clearest and most satisfactory evidences of inspiration, and which has afforded almost unspeakable consolation to the Presbyterian church, is as follows. Set thou a wicked man over him, and let Satan stand at his right hand. When he shall be judged, let him be condemned, and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. Let his children be continually vagabonds, and beg. Let them seek their bread also out of their desolate places. Let the extortioner catch all that he hated, and let the strangers spoil his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy unto him, neither let there be none to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off, and in the generation following let their name be blotted out. But do thou for me, O God, the Lord, for thy name's sake. Because thy mercy is good, deliver thou me. I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. Think of a God wicked and malicious enough to inspire this prayer. Think of one infamous enough to answer it. Had this inspired psalm been found in some temple, erected for the worship of snakes, or in the possession of some cannibal king, written with blood upon the dried skins of babes, there would have been a perfect harmony between its surroundings and its sentiments. No wonder that the author of this inspired psalm coldly received Socrates and Penelope, and reserved his sweetest smiles for Catherine Second. Ninth, with having said that the battles in which the Israelites engaged with the approval and command of Jehovah surpassed in cruelty those of Julius Caesar, was it Julius Caesar who said, and the Lord our God delivered him before us, and we smote him, and his sons, and all his people, and we took all his cities, and utterly destroyed the men, and the women, and the little ones of every city, we left none to remain. Did Julius Caesar send the following report to the Roman Senate? And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city which we took not from them. Threescore city, all the region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these cities were fenced with high walls, gates, and bars. Besides unwalled towns, a great many." and we utterly destroyed them as we did unto sihon king of heshbon utterly destroying the men women and children of every city did caesar take the city of jericho and utterly destroy all that was in the city both man and woman young and old Did he smite all the country of the hills, and of the south, and of the vale, and of the springs, and all their kings, and leave none remaining that breathed, as the Lord God had commanded? Search the records of the whole world, find out the history of every barbarous tribe, and you can find no crime that touched a lower depth of infamy than those THE BIBLE'S GOD COMMANDED AND APPROVED. FOR SUCH A GOD I HAVE NO WORDS TO EXPRESS MY loathing AND CONTEMPT, AND ALL THE WORDS IN ALL THE LANGUAGES OF MAN WOULD SCARCELY BE SUFFICIENT. AWAY WITH SUCH A GOD! GIVE ME JUPITER, RATHER, WITH IO AND EUROPA, OR EVEN SIVA AND HIS SKULLS AND SNAKES, OR GIVE ME NONE. 10th, with having repudiated the doctrines of total depravity! What a precious doctrine is that of the total depravity of the human heart! How sweet it is to believe that the lives of all the good and great were continual sins and perpetual crimes! That the love a mother bears her child is, in the sight of God, a sin! That the gratitude of the natural heart is simple meanness that the tears of pity are impure that for the unconverted to live and labor for others is an offense to heaven that the noblest aspirations of the soul are low and groveling in the sight of god that man should fall upon his knees and ask forgiveness simply for loving his wife and child, and that even the act of asking forgiveness is in fact a crime. Surely it is a kind of bliss to feel that every woman and child in the wide world, with the exception of those who believe the Five Points, or some other equally cruel creed, and such children as have been baptized, ought at this very moment to be dashed down to the lowest glowing gulf of the hell. Take from the Christian the history of his own church. Leave that entirely out of the question, and he has no argument left with which to substantiate the total depravity of man. A minister once asked an old lady, a member of his church, what she thought of the doctrine of total depravity and the dear old soul replied that she thought it a mighty good doctrine, if the Lord would only give the people grace enough to live up to it. (sighs) Eleventh, with having doubted the perseverance of the saints. I suppose the real meaning of this doctrine is that Presbyterians are just as sure of going to heaven as all other folks are of going to hell the real idea being that it all depends upon the will of God and not upon the character of the person to be damned or saved, that God has the weakness to send Presbyterians to paradise and the justice to doom the rest of mankind to eternal fire. It is admitted that no unconverted brain can see the least of sense in this doctrine, that it is abhorrent to all who have not been the recipients of a new heart, that only the perfectly good can justify the perfectly infamous. It is contended that the saints do not persevere of their own free will, that they are entitled to no credit for persevering, but that God forces them to persevere, while on the other hand every crime is committed in accordance with the secret will of God, who does all things for his own glory, compared with this doctrine, there is no other idea that has ever been believed by man that can properly be called absurd. As to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, I wish with all my heart that it may prove to be a fact. I really hope that every saint, no matter how badly he may break on the first quarter, nor how many shoes he may cast at the half-mile pole, will foot it bravely down the long home stretch, and win eternal heaven by at least a neck. Twelfth with having spoken and written somewhat lightly of the idea of converting the heathen with doctrinal sermons of all the failures of which we have any history or knowledge the missionary effort is the most conspicuous the whole question has been decided here in our own country and conclusively settled we have nearly exterminated the indians but we have converted none from the days of john elliot to the execution of the last modak not one indian has been the subject of irresistible grace or particular redemption The few red men who roam the western wilderness have no thought or care concerning the Five Points of Calvin. They are utterly oblivious to the great and vital truths contained in the Thirty-Nine Articles, the Saybrook Platform, and the Resolutions of the Evangelical Alliance. No Indian has ever scalped another on account of his religious belief. This of itself shows conclusively that the missionaries have had no effect. Why should we convert the heathen of China and kill our own? Why should we send missionaries across the sea and soldiers over the plains? Why should we send Bibles to the east and muskets to the west? If it is impossible to convert Indians who have no religion of their own, no prejudice for or against the eternal procession of the Holy Ghost, how can we expect to convert a heathen who has a religion, who has plenty of gods and Bibles and prophets and Christs, and who has a religious literature far grander than our own? Can we hope, with the story of Daniel in the lion's den, to rival the stupendous miracles of India? Is there anything in our Bible as lofty and loving as the prayer of the Buddhist? Compare your confession of faith with the following. Never will I seek nor receive private individual salvation, never enter into final peace alone, But forever and everywhere will I live and strive for the universal redemption of every creature throughout all worlds. Until all are delivered, never will I leave the world of sin, sorrow, and struggle, but will remain where I am. Think of sending an average Presbyterian to convert a man who daily offers this tender, this infinitely generous and incomparable prayer. Think of reading the hundred ninth Psalm to a heathen who has a Bible of his own in which is found this passage, Blessed is the man and beloved of all the gods who is afraid of no man and of whom no man is afraid why should you read even the new testament to a hindu when his own krishna has said if a man strike thee and in striking drop his staff pick it up and hand it to him again why send a presbyterian to a sufi who says better one moment of silent contemplation and inward love than seventy thousand years of outward worship Whosoever would carelessly tread one worm that crawls on earth, that heartless one is darkly alienate from God. But he that living embraceth all things in his love, to live with him God bursts all bounds above, below. Why should we endeavor to thrust our cruel and heartless theology upon one who prays this prayer? O God, show pity toward the wicked, for on the good thou hast already bestowed thy mercy by having created them virtuous. Compare this prayer with the curses and cruelties of the Old Testament, with the infamies commanded and approved by the being whom we are taught to worship as a god, and with the following tender product of Presbyterianism it may seem absurd to human wisdom that god should harden blind and deliver up some men to a reprobate sense that he should first deliver them over to evil and then condemn them for that evil but the believing spiritual man sees no absurdity in all this knowing that god would never be a whit less good even though he should destroy all men Of all the religions that have been produced by the egotism, the malice, the ignorance and ambition of man, Presbyterianism is the most hideous. But what shall I say more, for the time would fail me to tell of Sabellianism, of a model trinity, and the eternal procession of the Holy Ghost. Upon these charges a minister is to be tried here in Chicago, in this city of pluck and progress, this marvel of energy and this miracle of nerve. The cry of heresy here sounds like a wail from the dark ages, a shriek from the Inquisition, or a groan from the grave of Calvin. Another effort is being made to enslave a man. It is claimed that every member of the church has solemnly agreed never to outgrow the creed, that he has pledged himself to remain an intellectual dwarf. Upon this condition the church agrees to save his soul, and he hands over his brains to bind the bargain. Should a fact be found inconsistent with the creed, he binds himself to deny the fact and curse the finder. With scraps of dogmas and crumbs of doctrine he agrees that his soul shall be satisfied forever. What an intellectual feast the confession of faith must be! It reminds one of the dinner described by Sidney Smith, where everything was cold except the water, and everything sour except the vinegar. Every member of a church promises to remain orthodox, that is to say, stationary. Growth is heresy. Orthodox ideas are the feathers that have been molted by the eagle of progress. They are the dead leaves under the majestic palm, while heresy is the bud and blossom at the top. Imagine a vine that grows at one end and decays at the other. The end that grows is heresy. The end that rots is orthodox. The dead are orthodox, and your cemetery is the most perfect type of a well-regulated church. No thought, no progress, no heresy there slowly and silently side by side the satisfied members peacefully decay there is only this difference the dead do not persecute and what does a trial for heresy mean it means that the church says to a heretic Believe as I do, or I will withdraw my support. I will not implore you. I will pursue you until your garments are rags, until your children cry for bread, until your cheeks are furrowed with tears. I will hunt you to the very portals of the tomb, and then my God will do the rest. I will not imprison you. I will not burn you. The law prevents my doing that. I helped make the law, not, however, to protect you, nor deprive me of the right to exterminate you, but in order to keep other churches from exterminating me. A trial for heresy means that the spirit of persecution still lingers in the church, that it still denies the right of private judgment, that it still thinks more of a creed than truth that it is still determined to prevent the intellectual growth of man. It means that churches are shambles, in which are bought and sold the souls of men. It means that the church is still guilty of the barbarity of opposing thought with force. It means that if it had the power, the mental horizon would be bounded by a creed, that it would bring again the whips and chains and dungeon keys, the rack and faggot of the past. But let me tell the church it lacks the power. There has been and still are too many men who own themselves, too much thought, too much knowledge for the church to grasp again the sword of power. The church must abdicate, for the Eglon of superstition science has a message from truth. The heretics have not thought and suffered and died in vain. Every heretic has been, and is, a ray of light. Not in vain did Voltaire, that great man, point from the foot of the Alps the finger of scorn at every hypocrite in Europe. Not in vain were the splendid utterances of the infidels, while beyond all price are the discoveries of science. The Church has impeded, but it has not, and it cannot, stop the onward march of the human race. Heresy cannot be burned, nor imprisoned, nor starved. It laughs at presbyteries and synods, at ecumenical councils, and the impotent thunders of Sinai. Heresy is the eternal dawn, the morning star, the glittering herald of the day. Heresy is the last and best thought. It is the perpetual new world, the unknown sea, toward which the brave all sail. It is the eternal horizon of progress. Heresy extends the hospitalities of the brain to new thoughts. Heresy is a cradle, orthodoxy a coffin. Why should a man be afraid to think, and why should he fear to express his thoughts? Is it possible that an infinite deity is unwilling that man should investigate the phenomena by which he is surrounded? Is it possible that a god delights in threatening and terrifying men? What glory, what honor and renown a god must win in such a field? The ocean raving at a drop, a star envious of a candle, the sun jealous of a firefly! Go on, Presbyteries and Synods, go on, thrust the heretics out of the church. That is to say, throw away your brains, put out your eyes. The infidels will thank you. They are willing to adopt your exiles. Every deserter from your camp is a recruit for the Army of Progress." Cling to the ignorant dogmas of the past, read the hundred and ninth psalm, gloat over the slaughter of mothers and babes, thank God for total depravity, shower your honors upon hypocrites, and silence every minister who is touched with that heresy called genius. Be true to your history, turn out the astronomers, the geologists, the naturalists, the chemists, and all the honest scientists with a whip of scorpions drive them all out we want them all keep the ignorant the superstitious the bigoted and the writers of charges and specifications keep them and keep them all repeat your pious platitudes in the drowsy ears of the faithful and read your bible to heretics as kings read some forgotten riot act to stop and stay the waves of revolution you are too weak to excite anger we forgive your efforts as the sun forgives a cloud as the air forgives the breath you waste How long, oh, how long will man listen to the threats of God and shut his ears to the splendid promises of nature? How long, oh, how long will man remain the cringing slave of a false and cruel creed? By this time the world should know that the real Bible has not yet been written, but is being written, and that it will never be finished until the race begins its downward march or ceases to exist. The real Bible is not the work of inspired men, nor prophets, nor apostles, nor evangelists, nor of Christ. Every man who finds a fact adds, as it were, a word to this great book. It is not attested by prophecy, by miracles, or by signs. It makes no appeal to faith, to ignorance, to credulity of fear. It has no punishment for unbelief, and no reward for hypocrisy. It appears to men in the name of demonstration. It has nothing to conceal. It has no fear of being read, of being investigated and understood. It does not pretend to be holy or sacred. It simply claims to be true. It challenges the scrutiny of all, and implores every reader to verify every line for himself. It is incapable of being blasphemed. This book appeals to all the surroundings of man. Each thing that exists testifies of its perfection. The earth with its heart of fire and crowns of snow, with its forests and plains, its rocks and seas, with its every wave and cloud, with its every leaf and bud and flower, confirms its every word, and the solemn stars shining in the infinite abysses are the eternal witnesses of its truth. End of Ingersoll's Lecture on Heretics and Heresies. This is a LibriVox recording, read for you by Ted DeLorme in Fort Mill, South Carolina, on July eleventh, two thousand nine.